Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Even before enacting these policies, the only way that they're going to happen is if you elect more women. And part of that is electing women because they're women. We always hear, oh, well, yeah, we should elect women, but it's got to be the right woman. Or I don't know. I just don't like her. She's too annoying or she's too ambitious or she's too this, too that. Uh, And all of those are excuses. That's Katie Hill. She's the former Democratic congresswoman from California who flipped her district in 2018, becoming one of the youngest women to be elected to Congress. She resigned last October after the conservative website Red State published non-consensual nude photos of her and text messages between her and a former campaign staffer. Now Hill is speaking out. In a new memoir, She Will Rise, Becoming a Warrior in the Battle for True Equality, Hill details her experiences with misogyny, sexual abuse, and cyber exploitation. And she calls for the election of more women because they are women. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user 00MrsCooper, who's responding to a Nancy Pelosi tweet. Speaker Pelosi tweeted, quote, The Office of the Director of National Intelligence's decision to cancel all election security briefings for the Congress is a shocking abdication of its responsibility to keep Congress informed. Mrs. Cooper asks, Is ODNI's move legal? What can anyone do? Hashtag AskPreet. Hashtag do something. You know, as with so many things with this administration, new policies, changes in practices, it's often the case that there's not a law that specifically prohibits it. It's a norm. It's a tradition. It's standard operating procedure. And this appears to be one of those things. So the move by ODNI, having scheduled briefings about election security already for mid-September and then canceling them, is troubling. It's unsettling. I think it's unfortunate. But it's likely not illegal. By way of background, John Ratcliffe, you'll recall, is the most recent ODNI. He was floated as a possibility for that position some months ago. People thought he was unconfirmable. Somehow he had a political resurrection. And he's now in the job, fairly political person, uh, was notable in the impeachment hearings, and is a strong supporter of Donald Trump. So the DNI, John Ratcliffe, sent a letter to congressional leaders last week that says, quote, in order to ensure clarity and consistency across the ODNI's engagements with Congress on elections, the ODNI will primarily meet its obligation to keep Congress fully and currently informed 
leading into the presidential election through written, finished intelligence products. So you'll note that even in the Ratcliffe letter, he accepts and agrees that he has an obligation to keep Congress fully informed. There's a section of the National Security Act of 1947 that makes clear that the heads of the intelligence community agencies shall, quote, keep congressional intelligence committees fully and currently informed of all intelligence activities of the United States. But there's nothing that I'm aware of that says anywhere whether that briefing or that information has to be conveyed in person by a human or in writing. I imagine that there's a combination of both things that takes place over time. The Democratic leaders, of course, are upset about it. You saw Nancy Pelosi's tweet. There was a combined statement made by Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff, the chair of the Intelligence Committee in the House, chastising the ODNI for making this decision, decrying it. Uh, and they say in their joint statement, among other things, quote, we expect the administration and intelligence community to keep us fully and accurately informed and resume the briefings. If they are unwilling to, we will consider the full range of tools available to the House to compel compliance. So I don't know exactly what that means. I suppose they have subpoena power and they can call people to come testify, either behind closed doors, which is what this would, you would think have to be if it's talking about sensitive intelligence matters relating to the election or otherwise. So we'll see what happens with respect to that impasse. Now, why is it that John Ratcliffe decided to end these in-person briefings? Well, it's reportedly because he's angry about leaks from recent briefings. And there's a back and forth about whether or not there were leaks, who were the leakers, etc. That's a perpetual problem and a perpetual back and forth, he says, she says argument about whether or not things that are said in private briefings become public. We know, putting this issue aside in this particular circumstance, there has been a considerable amount of leaking from the executive branch. What's curious to me, though, is to the extent you're providing sensitive information in written form, I don't know how the leaking problem is ameliorated by just doing it in writing as opposed to in person. Obviously, one of the reasons that members of Congress are upset that they're not getting in-person briefings is because that's the kind of briefing that is more informative. If you get cold words on a written page, we talked about this in connection with Trump testifying as opposed to submitting written answers to questions in the Mueller investigation. When there's a live human being coming to brief members of Congress or in any other setting, there's an opportunity to ask follow-up questions, to ask for clarifications, to ask why some things have been omitted, and to ask for further information, whether in written form or in testimony again in the future. It is seen as an opportunity for people to be evasive about what they want to convey and be minimalist in what they want to convey and be selective in what they want to convey. In my experience as a lawyer in court and my experience just as a person generally trying to understand an issue and get information that's important to my being able to do my job or carry out some task is to be sitting in a room with somebody who provides information and there can be a back and forth and request for further information if necessary or a clarification. And that's what I think is going to be lost by this seemingly partisan move to cancel those briefings. But as someone likes to say, we'll see what happens. And by the way, Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein will be talking about this issue in greater detail on Friday's episode of the United Security Podcast. This question comes from Twitter user A. Gallant, who asks, Hey, Preet Bharara, what are the penalties for violating the Hatch Act? Asking for America, hashtag AskPreet. So I presume you're asking the question because of the spectacle that was the Republican National Convention last week, in particular, day four, the final day, when essentially the White House grounds were made into a campaign site. You had Donald Trump addressing the nation in one of his most important speeches to accept the nomination of his party, right on the South Lawn with lots and lots of folks inside and outside of government who had to have participated in making that possible. The quick answer to your question what are the penalties? There are certain circumstances in which there could be a criminal violation, but generally speaking, 
someone who violates the Hatch Act, which is a prohibition against using government funds or government office buildings, taxpayer-funded locations to engage in political activity, that's the prohibition. But someone who does violate that, if you're a federal employee, is subject to certain penalties. In particular, quote, disciplinary action consisting of removal, reduction in grade, debarment from federal employment for a period not to exceed five years, suspension or reprimand, end quote. Also potentially, a civil penalty not to exceed $1,000. So there are real penalties for violating the Hatch Act. As Ann Milgram and I discussed on the Insider Podcast, there are a number of examples of ordinary rank-and-file federal employees who have suffered penalties for violating the Hatch Act. The Washington Post had a good article recently talking about some of these folks. There was a defense logistics agency employee who was suspended for 30 days without pay last fall after giving his office colleagues a PowerPoint presentation that displayed the words, vote Republican. There are other examples. There was a civil servant who faced a 120-day suspension without pay from the FDA after creating a Facebook page with his name and photograph to solicit political donations and then co-hosting a fundraiser. There have been Hatch Act violations uh, in most administrations, and usually they're taken seriously, maybe not as seriously as some would like, but there are reprimands, there are precautions taken. Among the other things, by the way, that happened at the RNC last week was Donald Trump seems to have used a naturalization ceremony, which is an official government act, for pure purposes of political propaganda to be used at the convention. And then you had the instance of Mike Pompeo, the sitting secretary of state, not only addressing the convention, which is unprecedented in modern times for someone of that position to address a political convention, but he did it from Jerusalem, injecting you know politics into all sorts of things. Previous administrations, both Republican and Democratic, have been careful about that. And certain cabinet secretaries have been told not to participate in political conventions. And when some have, they've been told to do so without reference to their office and without talking about the official position that they have. They're acting in their personal capacity. Now, implicit in your question is, why aren't people being penalized in connection with what has happened under the Trump administration? And the reason for that is the responsibility for investigating these kinds of things resides in an office of special counsel, not the Mueller special counsel. This is a different special counsel. And they make findings and they make recommendations as they have with respect to Kellyanne Conway, for example, who they've recommended firing. Well, she's gone, so that's no longer uh, an issue there. But that action has to be taken by the relevant supervisor of the person who's engaged in the transgression. And for all the things we've been talking about in the last couple of minutes, that supervisor is kind of the president of the United States who has chosen not to care. So there are penalties. They have been brought to bear on people who are not as powerful and close to the president as some of the folks engaged in these activities. There's not a whole hell of a lot people can do. I think this is one of the things that a future Congress in the next administration should think about amending perhaps in some way and and giving it more teeth. Because at the end of the day, these are things that protect democracy, separate politics from government that are important for both parties, not just Republicans, not just Democrats. And the precedents being set here for the flouting of the Hatch Act are not going to be good precedents for the future if and when a Democratic administration decides to flout them too. Not to mention what message it sends to rank and file federal employees around the country who can suffer you know, severe consequences when they see people above them being able to get away with it. I should note also, in fairness, that the Hatch Act specifically exempts the president and the vice president of the United States. Maybe that's what gives them some comfort that they can do these things. But obviously, the president and the vice president are not solely responsible for organizing events like the fourth day of the RNC. One of the arguments also made by this special counsel in the Trump administration, in fairness, is that as a technical matter, 
the Rose Garden and the South Lawn are not considered subject to the Hatch Act. I think that's open to interpretation, but that's the state of play. I wouldn't expect any penalties for Trump folks violating the Hatch Act, but thanks for asking. By the way, our very own Ellie Honig writes a bit more about the Hatch Act in this Friday's Cafe Brief. Check it out. If you don't already receive our free weekly newsletter, sign up at cafe.com slash brief. This question comes in an email from Dave, who says, Hi, Preet. What are the chances that the president pardons Steve Bannon et al. after the election and before the inauguration? Great podcast. Thanks. So that's a perennial question we have to ask with respect to any human being now who gets charged if they're an associate, friend, former ally, current ally of the president of the United States. And there are two reasons why the president might choose to pardon someone or commute their sentence, as he's done before with Roger Stone and others. One is, cynically, he wants to keep them quiet. And it's kind of an understanding that if you keep your mouth shut, that there's going to be something in it for you because I can reach my hand in and short circuit the criminal justice process and save your skin. And the other reason is Donald Trump just doesn't like certain people who are close to him to have to be punished. His whole MO with respect to how he thinks about the justice system is punishment for political adversaries and you know the saving of people who are political allies, whether it's Michael Flynn or anyone else. Now, so this is all speculation, but I do think uh, even, even at this late date, when Donald Trump has engaged in so much seemingly absurd conduct when it comes to pardons and other things, that the Steve Bannon case is different. The Bannon case is not really about the president's campaign. It's not really about saving the president, protecting the president in any way. It's a sort of rank and file charity fraud in which Steve Bannon and others made clear to the public that they were taking donations to build a wall at the southern border and that every single penny was going to go to that cause and no one was going to take a salary and no money was going to go into the pockets of the heads of that organization. It's a simple fraud. It's one that should upset the people who gave money, some of whom did not have a lot of money to give. And so it's a little bit removed from the kinds of things that Trump seems to care about, like the Russia investigation, which he calls the Russia hoax. It doesn't really implicate the president. There's also reports that he and Steve Bannon, you know, had a parting of the ways. Steve Bannon obviously left the administration after not a very long while. Trump has done his usual thing when he doesn't like someone so much, saying, you know, I barely knew the guy. Um, I didn't have him on the campaign for very long. He's worked for a lot of other people, including Goldman Sachs. So the combination of this not being directly related to something that's in Trump's interest, it being kind of a straight financial fraud of a bad nature, and the comments that Trump has made in distancing, to me, make it seem like it's unlikely that Steve Bannon will get the benefit of it. But you never know. If it turns out that Steve Bannon is thinking about turning on the president, has information to give about him or members of his family or other associates, anything is possible. This question comes in an email from Jason, who writes, Dear Preet, kudos to the SDNY, AUSA's agents, and USPIS, United States Postal Inspection Service inspectors, for the recent indictment in the We Build the Wall investigation. It seems highly unusual to me that our good friends at the FBI were excluded. Why do you think FBI and IRSCI, that's IRS Criminal Investigations, didn't participate in this impactful financial investigation? Yours truly, a humble IRSCI agent. You know, well, that's a good question that people have been asking. Obviously, I ran that office for seven and a half years, so I can speculate. And this is pure speculation because I have no knowledge at all. And, and as you know, as a former agent with the IRS, that cases come about in various ways. Sometimes a case comes across an agent's desk because there's a whistleblower or there's an informant or a complaint made, uh, or it's an offshoot of another case that the agent has been working on. And then that agent in whatever agency, DEA, Secret Service, FBI, IRS, whatever, 
can generally, in their discretion, bring the case to a particular U.S. attorney's office. In New York, there are multiple options, right? There, there are two U.S. attorney's offices in New York City itself, the only city in the country that has more than one U.S. attorney's office. The entire state of Massachusetts only has one U.S. attorney's office. New York State has four. So it's possible in this case that the matter came to the attention of the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, and they brought it to SDNY, which makes sense for a lot of reasons. Um, it's also possible, as happens in SDNY in particular, that cases originate within the office. Not only are there great and fabulous assistant U.S. attorneys, both in the criminal and civil divisions there, but a sort of well-kept secret is that SDNY has a whole group of investigators. When I was there, there were about 19 of them, some of them former police officers, some of them former federal agents, and they work for SDNY and have the ability to carry on investigations. And they are a force to be reckoned with. Some of our most significant political corruption investigations, for example, were largely driven by the SDNY investigators, who were among the greatest people I've ever met. I've written about several of them in my book, Doing Justice, which you may recall if you've read it. So one possibility is that the Southern District was on its own conducting this mostly document-driven, bank-material-driven investigation with respect to Steve Bannon and the others in the We Build the Wall investigation. And at some point, it becomes necessary to involve another federal agency just for a lot of you know reasons relating to procedure and administration and logistics, uh, and also to get their training and experience and bring them on board after you've advanced a particular amount. I don't know if that's true, but that sometimes is the case that happened with some of our political corruption cases. And then there is speculation. And again, I, I will not opine one way or another on this, but I think it is possible that given the sensitive nature of the investigation, given the degree to which SDY might have been concerned about intrusion uh, and interference at the highest levels of the Justice Department, because Steve Bannon was a potential target, that when the SDNY was choosing who to partner with, they went with an agency that is great and respected, and I've worked with them on a lot of cases when I was in the office as a line prosecutor also, to bring in an agency that was not part of the Justice Department, so that the risk of it being reported up in a way that might draw interference was lower. Some people have said that. I don't know if that's true. I wish I knew. I miss being there and knowing all the secrets. I don't know. In any event, the partnership between SDNY and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service goes back a long way, and they will ably handle the case. Stay tuned. There's more coming up right after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common— it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, 
one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. My guest this week is former Congresswoman Katie Hill. One of the youngest women ever to be elected to Congress, Hill stepped down in October, following the unauthorized publication of intimate photos of her and allegations of an inappropriate relationship. Hill's new memoir tells the story of how years of domestic abuse culminated in the scandal that ended her political career, at least for the time being. Now she's channeling her experience to fight for the election of more women to public office. Katie Hill, thanks for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me. Congratulations on the book, She Will Rise, Becoming a Warrior in the Battle for True Equality. Thank you. Congratulations. Was it was it a hard book to write? I guess it must have been because you write about some painful things. Why, why'd you do it? Yeah, I mean, part of it was that, it, yes, I, it, I will say it was hard, but it was also um, very cathartic and therapeutic to go through. I wrote it in the weeks following my brother's death. So, um, you know, right on the heels of my resignation, uh, less than two months later, well, I guess just about two months later, my, my mom had brain surgery, then my brother passed away. Um, and the book deadline was already coming up because I wanted it to be a, um, I wanted it to be released in conjunction with the hundredth anniversary of the 19th amendment passing. And so I had to, I had to do it really fast, but I think the start of quarantine plus everything else, plus, you know, really just buckling down and doing this, you know, 24 seven for several weeks was, um, I think it was the right way for me to, to try and do the book. Where did you find the strength? Uh, family support and honestly a feeling of purpose. Like I, I needed to have something to dedicate my energy to. And I felt like my work was not done when I resigned. Um, but I knew that it was going to take a new form. And so the book is really intended to show, you know, using my experiences, but also more importantly, the experiences of other women, uh, how these are universally faced barriers. These are experiences that are shared by so many women. And that the only way that we're going to truly achieve true equality is by electing more women. And, and in fact, electing women because they are women and uh, intentionally choosing that path um, to get to equal leadership. So you, in the subtitle to the book, you talk about becoming a warrior in the battle for true equality, and you talk about what it means to be a warrior. Why warrior and, and what does warrior mean to you? Well, I think warrior, I talk about it in the book that my, you know, I grew up kind of on this track of, of idealizing warrior women, whether it was Xena warrior princess or um, fictional characters in books. And I think as it, you know, the further I've gone in my life and especially over the, you know, the past couple of years, the more I've realized that 
women are warriors every single day. And when I was, you know, especially during my resignation, that was a phrase that a few of my colleagues used uh, a lot. And, and it really resonated with me. And I think that I really did feel like I was, when I had gone through my, my roughest time where I considered suicide and I um, came out of that and I felt like, okay, I'm coming out of this as a warrior. I'm scarred. You know, I'm going to put on my battle uniform. I'm going to put on my, my battle makeup which was the red lipstick. And then, um, and then I felt like it was my armor and I was able to go out. And, and I think that that's kind of the ongoing mentality is that it's, that's how you can not give up is by saying that, no, I'm in this fight for the long term, And it's, it's a duty that I have. You talk about how, when you were young, you had a good amount of confidence. Where'd that confidence come from? I think that really came from my family and from, you know, being encouraged to, you know, believe that I can, I can be anything. And, there was nothing that says that a girl can't be something that a guy can. And I actually, I really give my parents tremendous amount of credit for that. But the thing is, you know, reality hits you at a certain point and it hits you in, I think it probably hits every woman in different ways. But for me, the first, my first experiences, my first battle wounds, as I refer to them as were sexual assaults. And, um, unfortunately that's, that's a shared experience. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter if you can get the job, uh, if we are still continually undermined in the way that we are trying to um, to assert our power in the world, then and, and if we can't even guarantee our basic physical safety, um, then we are not equal. And it's going to take uh, really conscious effort to try to address those, you know, that culture and that toxic masculinity that has led us to this place. How did some of those early awful experiences change you? You think? I think it made me realize that, you know, that I'm, that I'm going to have to fight that much harder to, to find my place and to determine my own destiny. But I, but even, even over the course of time, like when I was younger, I fell victim to the same kinds of things that uh, many women do, which is believing that it was your fault in the first place. So it's taken years to kind of overcome that mentality and to, to really try and turn that into something that's useful and Part of why I shared the stories that I did in the book is because, um, you know, when I've, when I've spoken about them before, whether it was on the campaign trail or in, you know, some of these op-ed pieces that I've written afterwards, or even just on social media, I get these messages from women who say, you know, I felt so alone. I didn't think that anyone else had been through this and you, you sharing your story means so much to me. Um, and I think that women in power, women in any kind of a public profile, public position, should be using their platform to show the commonality of these experiences and how we need to push through them and and what kind of changes need to be made in our society so that, you know, this isn't the expectation for girls in future generations. Yeah. I want to talk about your, your run for Congress and your time in Congress before we get to some of the other more difficult things. So how, how old were you when you decided I'm going to run for Congress from California's 25th? I was 29. When I started running. 29. Yep. And what made you think that that was the right thing to do for you? What was your impetus? Honestly, I didn't, you know, necessarily think that it was the right thing to do for <laughs> me. Um, I, I think, you know, I was, I was really spurred into action because of the results of the 2016 election. Um, I had been the executive director of the largest homeless services nonprofit in California. And, you know, we'd worked on this really crucial legislation locally. Um, we, you know, knew how important the federal uh, resources that we got were to 
enact our mission of ending homelessness. And all of that was in, in jeopardy with, you know, a Republican House and Senate and with Trump entering the White House. But more than that, it was, I was fundamentally shaken, I think, like so many women were, that this blatant misogynist who who's unapologetic, you know, defeated probably the most qualified person that has ever run for president um, and who would have been the first woman who was president. And, and I was, you know, really invested in that. And um, I think that, I think it just became so clear to me that the, the fantasy world that we're living in of, you know, all, of course, all women are equal. And it's just a given that we've just like, I think people thought when we had, uh, when we were able to elect Barack Obama, that, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, well, obviously racism, racism has gotten <laughs> uh, solved. I think we got comfortable too by saying, well, Hillary Clinton is the nominee and of course she's going to become president and therefore sexism is solved. And it was just like, it's not, it's not at all. And obviously we've all woken up to that the problems with that line of thinking in both cases. But for me, I was, I was like, I have to do something and I wanted to get involved in one of the races um, one of the congressional races. And I found out that the district that I've spent my whole life in was key in us being able to flip the house. So I was like, great, this is so exciting. I'm going to be able to to help flip my very own community, get the representation that I think we deserve. But as I started to look into it, the person who was kind of the likely candidate was um, he had run in 2016 and had lost uh, by a solid margin, even though Hillary Clinton won the district by almost seven points. So I thought, you know, we, this isn't the person that can beat the Republican incumbent, Steve Knight. And I'm complaining about it. I'm saying, we got to get somebody who's local. We got to, you know, it'd be great to have a woman, blah, blah, blah. Um, And finally, uh, some of my friends and, you know, mentors said, well, Katie, why don't you run? And at first I laughed at that, but then eventually I was like, well, you know what? Why not? And um, tried to, (laughs) to figure it out. And it, it honestly was just such a long shot that as it builds, every single step of the way was a, um, was monumental and, and it truly felt like a movement and I'm proud of what we accomplished, even, even though it ended the way that it did, I think that we still made a difference with the campaign. So when you begin a race like that and you, you perceive it as a long shot, is that liberating in how you go about campaigning and, and in your effort, or does it add more stress? Like what what was your feeling about it, given how tough a job it was going to be? I knew that it was, you know, it was near impossible odds, right? And that the entire time we were going to be facing this uphill battle of of showing, you know, who who is this person? Who's Katie Hill? Why is she on the scene? Why does she think she's the one to run for Congress? And I had to define myself. I had to run a campaign that that got interest and that mobilized people in a way that you wouldn't traditionally necessarily have gone because the the institutional support was already there for my main primary opponent from the last time around. He had all the union endorsements. He had like most of the local party support. Um, and so it was, you know, I like fighting as the underdog. So I would say, yes, it is. It is liberating. There wasn't a playbook to follow. And I, I, I believed that. And I still believe that's true that any playbook that existed before has been broken. Um, and we're in a new age of figuring out what works politically. And especially now with COVID, no one knows the answers. So I think I really just tried to run as, as a real person and um, as someone who believed in the things that I was saying and, and wanted what was best for our community. And I think that that's what, you know, what was picked up. Did you enjoy campaigning? Or like some people, did you see that as necessary to get to the place where you could make a difference? I saw that our campaign was making a difference in the number of people it inspired and how, you know, how many people were mobilized 
during it. I mean, we had 5,000 people show up to knock doors just during the last few days of the campaign. And that was something that, you know, had grown and grown and grown over the entire course of it. We were funded by small dollars. We were, it really was a grassroots effort that just kept growing to the point where I guess, you know, we won by one of the largest margins of anyone in one of these red to blue seats. And we, you know, ended up fundraising more than practically anybody else. And it it was like the underdog becoming, I don't know, the favorite. And it was a <laughs> the alpha. <laughs> and so it was a cool, it was a cool experience. And I, I loved campaigning. You know, you certainly get exhausted pretty regularly, but it was to me, it was so it was very fulfilling. What was your margin? I won by nine. Was that surprising to you? Or did it did there come a time before election day that you really felt the momentum and you thought it was going to happen? Well, I felt the momentum all along and I felt that it just kept building and building. And I called, I said to my staff that from before we won in the primary, I said that we're going to win, you know, if we win the primary, we're going to win the general by 10 points. And everyone laughed at me and thought, you know, no way. You know, they're like, okay, maybe we'll win by a couple points or maybe we'll squeak squeak out a win. But they certainly didn't think we'd win by a big margin. And, you know, I I didn't quite make it to 10, but we got to nine and then, (laughs) so I I was happy. Nothing, it's nothing, nothing to sneeze at. You you describe in the book, election night. Hey guys, Steve Knight just called to concede. You want to share some of your, your thoughts about election night with us? You know, I'm trying, I'm trying to even remember what I wrote in the book about that, but Election night was the culmination of so much work that not just I had put into it, but my staff and and so many volunteers and our supporters and people in the community. And and at that moment, it just felt like we were on the cusp of of really achieving something historic. And it was, I I felt certain at that point that we were going to win. And I think that it was like, okay, this is, this is real. Now we're going to have to move to the next stage. And and the next stage is, you know, figuring out how to be effective as a legislator is different from being effective as a candidate. Often really effective legislators are horrible candidates and, you know, great campaigners are terrible legislators. So I wanted to, I wanted to be good at both. both. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Right. And I feel like, you know, I feel like for the time that I was there, I was. So. So, so you wake up on Wednesday morning or maybe even late on Tuesday night and you see that not only have you won, but there are a whole bunch of other folks who have won who are new and who are very young. In fact, you were almost the youngest person elected to Congress in 2018, but not quite. Yeah, I was the third youngest. <laughs> on election day, were you still 29? Uh, no, no, no. I would, at that point, I was 31. So uh, time had passed, yeah. So at 31, you're only the third youngest to be elected. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Abby Finkenauer. Did you get to know some of those people who later became your friends in Congress? Did you get to know them during the campaign or only after you started in office? No, I did get to know them um, beforehand because many of us who were in these, they call them red to blue seats um, that, you know, the DCCC had decided to focus on. Many of us did joint events, uh, you know, further and further it came or it went throughout the campaign. And many of the women candidates who were successful, um, we were supported by Emily's list in our primaries. And so we did events together, you know, even before that. So you know, there were certainly new folks, but there were a lot of them that I'd met over the last year. Like Lauren Underwood, for example, she be- became my roommate. She became one of my closest friends here, but uh, she also, like we had become friends and kind of a-, a group of us women would text each other support and just kind of stay in touch throughout the campaigning, especially as we got to fundraising deadlines. And, um, you know, as someone's polling would come out, it was just like, 
you had this group of people who um, understood what campaigning was like, and especially campaigning in in this kind of a dynamic and a hard race like what we were facing. So, yeah, I, I think that that made it. You know, we became close close knit, and, and as a class, we were close knit uh, the entire time. So you start your term, you immediately get some impressive postings along with Representative Nagus. You guys were posted to what? We were the freshman leadership representatives for the class, which means that, um, you know, the, the class of freshmen was over 60 people and on the Democratic side. And um, that made up a quarter of the Democratic caucus. So we recognized that we could have a very large block of power if we um, if we work together. And we wanted to make the case to leadership that, you know, we, we deserve to have our representation you know, we weren't we weren't going to just sit by and and let the people who have been there before tell us, you know, how everything went. We wanted to have our our voices taken into into account, and so um, every class gets this this leadership representative. Apparently, most classes haven't done a whole lot with it, but you're invited to every major decision making meeting. Well, I shouldn't say every. I'm sure there are plenty more that go, <laughs> but to the major ones, the ones that anyone else is right uh, as part of the leadership team. So you've got the whip, you've got the assistant speaker, which was Ben Ray Lujan. You had the um, chairman Jeffries, and you know this just incredible group of people who are who are the top Democrats in the country and who are deciding the strategy as we're facing an unprecedented president and um, you know how we were going to try and maintain some semblance of order during all of that and also push forward an agenda that was progressive and, and ambitious. And, you know, even knowing that we were going to be up against uh, Mitch McConnell trying to stall everything, we felt that the, what we had promised to voters was that we were going to push this. And um, at the end of the day, I think part of the reason that we're seeing the momentum that Democrats have in taking over Republican held Senate seats this time is because of us in the House ha- having accomplished these things, but being blocked at the Senate level. And so I think this is our best shot to flip the Senate. And I think, you know, mostly people are going to credit that to Trump. And that's part of it. But I also think it's, it is in large part due to the progress of the 116th con- Congress and the pressure um, that's being put on the Senate because of that. What was your top priority when you started in office? Very quickly when I started, and this is what I ran on, was uh, getting big money out of politics and making sure that we had true representation. So HR one, it was the first major bill that we passed, and I was I I got on the whip team for it. I was um, you know a major advocate for it. I spoke on behalf of it everywhere. I was you know I considered it kind of my like I, I helped in developing pieces of it. And um, this is very very early on. So you know the intention of it was to limit the influence of big money in politics, ensure that gerrymandering would be stopped. Um, ensuring voting rights or, you know, restoring the Voting Rights Act. And it was really about, you know, this, the bottom line is that we need to have representation of the people, by the people, for the people, and that the current system, the way that it's been operating, has not done that. We were elected to office because we aren't insiders. We are actually representative of the public that we're supposed to serve. And that's exactly why I'm so proud to support HR1. So um, I think HR1 was such an important first step for us. And I was really, really proud to help be an architect, you know, some, something of an architect in that, and also um, helping to push it forward and, and setting the agenda of the, of the class. And I think that that needs to continue to be the priority if we do get the Senate and the White House. Um, if we don't pass HR1 in the very beginning, we are doing a major disservice to our likelihood of being able to continue to make progress, no matter what your other priorities are. 
you're on this great trajectory. I imagine many, many people are saying and writing, and they did, that you're a rising star and you're meeting with great success and you love campaigning and it went wonderfully for you. But at the same time, other things were going on in your life that made all of this very difficult. And and I'm asking you about it only because you're very honest and straightforward about it in the book. I think both, as you said, for yourself, but also maybe your stories will help other people. Yeah. I guess to begin, why don't you explain to folks some of the things you say in the book about what was going on with your husband, even before you got elected? Yeah, so I met my uh, my husband when I was 16 years old. And he was um, almost 21. And, you know, this is after a series, like I had three sexual assaults leading up to this and uh, before I met him. And uh, I, so I don't know, I, I fell for him in a way that I think, you know, looking back was certainly wasn't healthy. Um, but I also, and, and also knowing the age difference now, it's something that's, uh, yeah, anyway, looking back, it's just like, a, it, it's just like a mess, right? But I was in this, this relationship for my entire adult life. Um, and my, um, it was getting just progressively worse and worse. I think the more successful I was as a candidate, the more he tried to assert his control um, and dominance in other ways. And um, the relationship became more and more abusive. And I used, you know, I, the campaign was my escape and the people I worked with who at, at the beginning, you know, it didn't feel like I was any different from them. It felt like we were all, I was, I was maybe the face of it, but it felt like we were all on the same team to try and accomplish something that was so impossible. Um, and so I got too close to, you know, my staff, I think, and didn't set clear boundaries. And, and ultimately, you know, I ended up having a relationship with someone who worked on the campaign. And once I got to Congress, um, I knew that I was, I was going to have to leave my husband. I actually, shortly before the election, I tried to leave. And, um, he told me then that he would ruin me if I left. And, um, what did you understand him to mean when he said, I will ruin you? Well, I knew, I mean, obviously the, the most obvious thing was that he knew about this relationship that I had. And so to me, that was the, that was a very obvious threat. I didn't know about the images that he had, but, um, I, I figured it was related to that. And so I decided, I said, you know, okay, I can't, I can't face this right now. And I went back to him. But then after I was in Congress for a while, I was like, this is, this is not sustainable. And I felt like I was, you know, I'd kind of, I'd kind of figured out I can be independent. And, um, you know, I was living on my own first time, even with a roommate by myself, uh, as an adult, oddly, that was a very, a very, I don't want to call it juvenile, but kind of juvenile, um, life accomplishment at the same time that I'd been, you know, that I'd been elected to Congress. And so I finally was like, okay, I, I have, I have to leave. Um, and I guess, you know, you kind of fall back on this, like, this has been the person that I've been closest to that I've trusted for my, you know, entire adult life. And, and that they wouldn't, they wouldn't do something like that. Um, especially because, you know, I, I didn't think he'd want to hurt her either. Um, but he did. And so I left him in June and a few months later, we started hearing that he was trying to circulate information locally. And, um, apparently it made its way into the hands of Republican operatives in the district who were dead set on trying to find something on me and he gave it to them. And then they, they mailed the images, made their way into red state and the daily mail. So before we get into some of that, going back to your husband's abusiveness, did you fear for your physical safety with him? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my physical safety was, was, um, 
physical abuse takes many different forms. Um, and I talk about some of that in the book and abuse in general takes many different forms, but specifically the most in danger I felt was he had, he had weapons, he had firearms. We lived in a rural area where, you know, it's, it's just, you can't rely on, on law enforcement to get there any, any time that would matter. Right. Like they're just too far away. And, um, so I had a gun that was my grandfather's gun, uh, that I kept, you know, by my side of the bed. He had his, by his side of the bed and, um, like in these little compartments. And, um, I started to get it scarier and scarier. And, um, then I realized that he had taken mine from my side and then he started carrying his more and more, um, just regular during the day, just brandishing it. And, and, um, it was clearly an intimidation technique. And, um, it was, and at one point he was like shaking it, it at me. And, um, and I was just, that was when it was so clear. I was like, he's way too volatile. I don't know what he's going to do. And he's got, he's got weapons and I don't even have anything to defend myself with. And is that when you left? That was when I, that was, that was when I left the first time. And then I guess, you know, I tried to, I tried to, uh, well, not the, I guess that wasn't the first, first time, but that was when I left right before the election. And, um, after the election, I think things calmed down a little bit and I was also gone a lot. You know, I didn't have to stay with him because I was in Washington. Your district is very far away, the other side of the country. Yeah. So, um, my staff obviously wanted me to come back to the district all the time to, you know, because when you're in a competitive district, you need to be there. You need to be present. Um, and generally people go back every weekend and I, I, for the most part was, but I, um, you know, I, I tried actively to come home less than, you know, I know that they wanted me to, because I didn't want to be around him. And, um, and so when I, when I finally did leave for real, I'd gone home, I think a, a week before, and it had just been another horrible experience. Like he wouldn't let me sleep if we got into a fight, like he would, he would literally like force me to stay up and then I'd still have to do my campaign events and, and my congressional events the next day. And, you know, I, I did that. And then I went home to DC or went back to DC and I realized, you know, how much happier I was when, when I was able to just do my thing and, and not have to worry about him. And, um, and that was when I decided I need, I need to actually make this permanent. And so my, I, because of my safety, I brought my dad with me, um, when I, when I left and my dad, my dad's a, <clears throat> a police officer, he's a captain. Um, and so, you know, I didn't want to go alone and yeah. I, I, and ever after that, there have been many times that I've been worried for my safety, especially, you know, he said, he said some things on social media that are scary and, um, you know, I, it's something that I just like my family's constantly kind of concerned about too. Are you still concerned? I think, yeah. One of the things I'm worried about about this week is, um, you know, the more attention that I get, the more volatile I think he becomes. And, um, the more that, that I talk about this, the more, you know, I think that it's likely to set something off. Fortunately, I am on the opposite side of the country. So that's something. Um, but we were pressing criminal charges on him for the distribution of, you know, of, you know non-consensual pornography, which is the, which are the photos. And, um, but that takes so long and, um, you know, the criminal charges haven't actually been brought yet by the U S attorneys. So, you know, the, the protection that you have is just very limited. And I think that mine is a case where I'm a very high profile, former Congresswoman was a Congresswoman at the time. 
And like, I can't even get a whole lot of protection around this. Um, yeah. Well, we'll talk a little bit about that because the laws are not very clear because it's an, it's an emerging thing, but, but just to focus for a second on what he did mm-hmm. and how you came to understand what he was doing. You know, he, he says to you once or more than once, I will ruin you. You leave him. And then as you began to mention these images surface, when did you learn about that? So, like I said, we I started hearing little rumors that Kenny's trying to shop some stuff around from like local activists, but you know, no details. And um, I learned that photos were, I, I didn't actually know what photos he had or was shopping around or anything like that um, until they were published in the, in red state. But about two days before they were published in red state, he's actually, this is what's so horrifying. He's the, I think he's still the chairman of the school board of the high school district in my district, uh, in my, yeah, in my congressional district. It's actually the high school district that I, of the school I went to. And, um, he is, you know, he, he has this blog, this right-wing blog and a radio show. Um, his name's Joe Messina and he published, or he wrote this whole thing about how, you know, he got these photos and, and was describing the photos, but he didn't publish them and, and said that they were, non, um, redacted. And then sure enough, two days later, you're there in the, they're in two different publications. And how'd you feel? Oh, my, you know, my, my heart just dropped. And, and then I, I remember very vividly that day in the office, right. You can't, that's not a, a moment you can forget. My staff came in and like, just showed me the phone, um, the, with the pictures and I'm just like, Oh my God. And, and so I can't really you know, I, I can't freak out because my staff is freaking out. And so I just sat back and I was like, okay. And then, um, and I said, I need a minute. And then we came back and we were like, well, what do we do? And you know, that's not a very easy thing to figure out what to do in that situation and did the best we could. (laughs) Did you understand when that happened that it wasn't just going to be one dump, that it was going to continue and be repeated again and again? No, I didn't. I mean, I, I had no idea you know, I'd never been through something like this in the, in the news cycle. Right. But I knew that it was salacious enough that it would be, it would, it would be getting attention. And I didn't know until later that he apparently had some kind of a drive with a combination of screenshots of text messages, um, and photos. And, and since I didn't even know that these photos existed in the first place, I had no idea what else he had. And so knowing that, you know, they said, they literally said in multiple different places we're going to keep releasing this bit by bit until until she resigns and you know i just didn't feel like i could put i didn't feel like i could get through that i didn't feel like my you know i could put my staff through that who were getting these horrible harassing phone calls and having to deal with them all the time um right and so on but your husband he claimed he was hacked he didn't accept responsibility for going out to ruin you correct there's just no i know that people have to add that in as a denial since there hasn't been you know Oh no! I I I believe you. My <laughs> my belief my belief doesn't matter so much. I'm I'm trying to get at the point of even to this day he does not concede that he had a role in that. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, and it's just impossible. Like you wouldn't there wouldn't be a file that was put together by hackers that happened to get it on his phone. I mean, it's just total baloney. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. 
Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. At some point, you make the decision to resign from Congress, which is a pretty big decision to make. But that wasn't based necessarily on the fact that these pictures had emerged. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think it's a combination of things. I think, you know, like I said, the idea of just continuing on with this, it felt like a continuation of of his abuse. It felt like it was something that I was going to have to put, you know, I, I wasn't the only one being put through it, right? My colleagues were, we were about to go into um, this impeachment inquiry, which was going to be a huge liability for so many of my freshman colleagues, especially from these hard seats. And I didn't want to be an additional liability for them. I mean, you know, they were already getting questions of like, what about Katie Hill? And I didn't want to be the one who was, you know, putting people in the position of, of having to um, either stand with me and be called hypocrites or have to admonish or, or distance themselves from me when they were, they, they were my friends, they were my allies. And I just didn't feel like it was the right thing to do to put them in that kind of a situation. Um, I think I was naive thinking that it would be easy to hold on to my seat, you know, since we flipped it. I think that I didn't really realize the, you know, the power of the movement that we had built and that, you know, that's something that's hard to to replicate. So uh, mine was lost to a Republican in the special election. I think we're going to win it back in the fall. But it's just a reminder that these things are, are fragile and um, we can very easily move backwards if we're not paying attention. And you had an ethics inquiry you had to deal with also? Yeah. I mean, that didn't really, that didn't really go anywhere because that was also, and this is actually something that I think is flawed with the system. Um, that ethics inquiry was opened entirely based on a tweet that my husband had put saying, you know, accusing me of an affair with a, with an actual staffer that was based on literally nothing else. So, you know, it's not like there was a complaint from, you know, a staffer or even a complaint from that staffer or any other staffers. Um, It was literally just an accusation that my husband had posted on Facebook. And I think that that's a, you know, that shouldn't be the policy. I think we need to be a lot better than that. At the very least, there needs to be some kind of a, uh, an accuser that isn't somebody who's determined to try and destroy you. I think you said in the book that it was notable in your head that you had called for Al Franken to resign Mm -hmm. when there were allegations made against him. And did that factor into your thinking about what you needed to do? It did. I know each of us has our own ways of kind of feeling like our situation's different, right? And I, I and I have mine, but at the end of the day, I know that, you know, it's not something that I should have done. And it's something that I should have recognized earlier that I did have this, this power differential and, and I didn't realize it at the time. But I, I think for me, I, I did not, I really got uncomfortable thinking about, you know, how I had called for Kavanaugh to not um, be confirmed as a, uh, as a justice. I had called for Franken to step down. And um, and then when it came to me, I, I didn't feel like I could, with a straight face, say to the, the world, like, I'm, I shouldn't be held accountable in the same way. You describe in the book what I thought was very compelling, a phone call with 
Nancy Pelosi with the speaker. Mm-hmm. Was she, you think, supportive of your staying or do you think she just wanted to defer to you? Just describe how that conversation felt to you. No, she asked me not to resign. And even later she called me back and said, you know, even, even staying on through the rest of the year and seeing what, you know, how you feel after that. Um, but I was, I was in the throes of depression at that point. Like that was, that was when I was suicidal and I, it, it just felt insurmountable. And so I think she, she really was supportive. I didn't know how that would manifest though. Um, in terms of, what would be required of her. I, I, I just hated the idea of her or anyone else having to talk about me and my scandal when they should be talking about the president and the impeachment and everything else that's important. Are there times when you regret having resigned? There's certainly times I, I don't, it's a hard question to answer. And when, when I have to choose yes or no, I don't regret resigning. I think it was absolutely the right thing to do at the time. I'm moving forward. I'm making the most of it. I think I'm even now realizing that I'm going to be able to have an even bigger impact um, by helping more people get elected. But uh, there's certainly times where you think, well, if this was my second term and not my first, or if I wasn't in the middle of the divorce, or if, you know, if we weren't about to go into impeachment, there are times that you think I might've been able to, to ride this out. You know, I don't think there's, it's very productive for me to just I, I would go crazy if I just kind of spun that over and over in my head. Have, have you thought about or have you commenced any kind of legal proceeding against Red State for publishing those photographs? Yeah, that's, um, we're, we're in the process of that. That's actually an interesting dilemma, I think, especially as a, as a progressively minded person, where the right to privacy, including you know, the distribution of, of photos like this, is in conflict with what they, the papers are going to claim is uh, protection of the First Amendment. And especially when you're talking about a public figure, they're going to make the argument that as a public figure, basically, I don't have any protection whatsoever. And But the case that we're going to make is that we cannot have this as a, as a standard where women can, if you're, if you're entering politics or public life, that means that every image that you've ever taken is fair game. I don't think that that's right. And so we expect this to be quite the legal battle and we're planning on pursuing that. I, basically, I was waiting for my divorce to be final, but the divorce, he won't sign. My ex still won't sign because he's still trying to hold on to control. And the court date has been pushed out because of COVID so many times. So now we've just been deciding on when the best course of timing is um, on when we actually file that lawsuit. But yeah, absolutely. So the way people describe what happened to you and what your uh, your husband perpetrated against you, they call it revenge porn. Mm-hmm. As you yep. say in the book, that's a problematic term. You prefer cyber exploitation. Explain why you think that's a, a bad term. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a connotation thing. The word revenge implies that someone has, you know, the, the victim has something that they're being taken revenge for having done. So it's almost like it puts them in immediately a position of like, oh, well, you did something to deserve this. The fact is, usually it's that they left the guy or, you know, I mean, pretty much that's the, that's the only time that it that's happens. That's basically <laughs> so, or it, right? being, Yeah, or they're being blackmailed. Um, uh, for something. So, you know, revenge is, is just wrong in, on its face. Um, but the, the second part, pornography is I think problematic too, because it's not something that should, we should be even looking at in the same vein as something that, you know, is, is used by millions for an allowable form of, of sexual enjoyment, which is pornography. And this is not that this is, um, exploitative photos and videos that are used without the consent of the person in those. 
um, person or persons in those. And it's over, over 90% of victims of cyber exploitation are women. And, um, it has devastating consequences. I mean, mine, you know, mine was a, was a very public one. It was, and, and I've talked about my own, you know, suicidal thoughts, but I have had so many women, um, reach out to me afterwards saying that they went through this and that the same thing happened to them. And just, you know, me sharing my story was really meaningful so that they didn't feel so alone. And, and I actually think that, you know, my DMs are full of people saying this happened to a friend of theirs. And, and I've been able, because of the research I did for the book, especially, um, I've been able to provide resources that I hope are actually helpful. What do you hope people learn from your experience when they read the book? I hope a few things. One is I hope that the experiences that I talk about, that both I've been through and um, and the other examples that I use, that they aren't alone and that um, there is a universality of these experiences that we ha- we we need to see a systemic sexism and we need to take a, um, a true concerted effort to break down or it's not going to be broken down. That's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, I hope that they're able to see from these experiences or see from the stories that I tell here, you know, within their experiences, maybe, maybe somebody at an earlier age than me, uh, reads it and says, you know what, this is what my relationship looks like. And that's not right. And I need to get out of this. Or that's, that's honestly one of the biggest like learning moments or, or things that I, that I hope to instill in especially younger women, like the, the part about coercive control and abuse women, especially younger women are, are really prone to getting into those kinds of relationships, especially after they've been assaulted or have gone through a traumatic experience. And um, I really hope that people read that and, you know, it, it allows them to reflect on their own relationships and choices. Um, but the third is saying that, you know, we do have a, we have a path forward and we can solve these problems and that, you know, we're obligated to, it's been a hundred years since we, we got the right to vote, the hard fought battles that, um, that other women, you know, our, our foremothers had to go through and that we, you know, are we okay with where we've made it in a hundred years? And for me, the answer is no. So I'm also not okay with waiting another hundred years to get to what we would consider equality. And I think that the book is a call to action of saying that if we want to, if we want to truly change this, then we need to enact these policies. But even before enacting these policies, the only way that they're going to happen is if you elect more women. And part of that is electing women because they're women. And, um, you know, we've always, we always hear, oh, well, yeah, we should elect women, but it's got to be the right woman. Or I don't know. I just don't like her. She's too annoying or she's too ambitious or she's too this, too that. Uh, And all of those are excuses that are, um, you know, internalized, frankly, internalized sexism, if it's, if it's not more overt than that. And so when I say, elect women because they're women, it's, it's a, it's an intentional challenge to that notion. And it's, it's frankly saying that we've been electing men because they're men for this entire time. So, you know, let's flip the, the switch on that. People who are listening are probably wondering why we're not talking about the vice presidential pick. And that's <laughs> because we're recording this before that pick has been made. Yeah, But yeah. when people listen to this, it will have been made. So we'll, we'll not make any predictions about that. Do you think, and I know you get this question a lot, but I'm going to ask it to you also, Given you've remained active and you were sort of dealing with the issues that have that have hurt you and have held you back and caused you to resign, do you think you might run for office again or make an impact doing things outside of elective office only? I will never rule anything out because if you'd asked me five years ago if I would ever run for office, the answer was probably no. So I know how <laughs> I know how quickly things can change, but it's certainly not in my immediate term plans of any sort. 
but I, but what is is really trying to make an impact through the organization I started her time which has um, you know three main ways of of mobilizing people and the first is helping women get elected and especially these these long shot women um, candidates that haven't necessarily gotten that national attention putting in the resources at an early stage so that we can um, that we can actually you know make an impact and, and help people pass that quote unquote viability test the second is to to activate young women voters um, in a way that I think that they haven't, I think it's an untapped, there's an untapped potential there. We're working on doing some research with her time that uh, can help us kind of figure out what it is it's going to take to, you know, get women from 18 to 40 who can be such a powerful voting block to do that, to mobilize for our candidates and not, and not just ours, but democratic and progressive ones across the board. Um, And then the third is once people are elected or, or even those who are already in office, we're going to be pushing these policies like equal pay, like passing HR one and getting rid of gerrymandering and getting big money out of politics because that's such a barrier for people. Raising the minimum wage that, that has a disproportionate impact on women. It's ending forced arbitration. So it's it's the set of policies um, and priorities that will push kind of an it's an agenda, a feminist agenda, if you will, um, that we'll be advocating for as well. So I'm going to be able to focus on on her time as, and really feel like it's a. I know that it's going to make an impact and I'm excited about that because this is just the beginning and, you know, next cycle after the presidential race is done, we are going to have a hell of a time trying to maintain the seats in the house. If you just look at history, you almost always see the party of the the president who's elected loses seats in the following house election. And so, you know, I think we're going to need to, to really fight uh, to make sure that doesn't happen. And finally, um, I have a running joke on the show in which I say that there is a secret law that was passed federally in this country that mandates every former government official to start a podcast. And you're, proving me, you're, you're proving me. I didn't know that. on that point. Oh yeah, it's 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 almost you know, especially for those who uh, like you and I either resigned or were fired. You got to start a podcast. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. t- tell tell folks about your podcast, and then we'll let you go do your good work. Sure. So um, the name of the podcast is uh, Naked Politics with Katie Hill, and we're just leaning all in. Um, and the idea is basically getting into uh, the dirty stuff around politics and you know things that people don't necessarily see or know about because it's not talked about much. So for example, the first person that I talked to is Bill Burton, who was Obama's spokesperson and who actually started the first major Democratic super PAC in 20... I guess it started in 2011... Um, or maybe the beginning of 2012, but it was after Citizens United. And just talking about, you know, what it does take to uh, compete with the other side and the, the dirty aspects of it that are just unseen if you haven't been kind of living in this world. And so um, I'm really excited about some of the people that we've got coming on. We've got current and former electeds um, who are willing to share their, you know, stuff that they normally wouldn't, um, but also just people who are in this space. And we'll see. We'll see if people care about what I have to say on this front, but... I'm interested in it. I'm so. sure. <laughs> well, as I learned when I first started doing a podcast, the most important thing is that you have an interest in it and you have curiosity about it. And if you do, then other people will also. There we go. That's my my one my one bit of advice that was given to me. Thank you. Katie Hill, thanks for being with us. Thanks for your book. Thanks for sharing your stories. The book is She Will Rise, Becoming a Warrior in the Battle for True Equality. Thanks very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Katie Hill. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. 
Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. <laughs>